Welcome, everyone, to the Progress City Radio Hour. I am Jeff Crawford. It's great to be with you. And with me, as always, my brother, Michael Crawford. How's it going, Michael? It's going great. I'm really excited to uh, get on to side B and see what we have to listen to this week. Let's flip this platter. First, we want to thank you all for listening to side A and our interview with Don Dorsey. It's been fun to be in the middle of all this. It's just like a two-month-long celebration of park music, which makes me very happy. But uh, we've got an exciting one up here for you in side B. It, It doesn't drop off very much, does it, Michael? No, it doesn't. It just keeps on going. Some of my favorite tracks are on this side of the album, especially some of the live music tracks. So really excited to see what we get into. Well, I want to tell you all before we get started that you need to stay tuned till the end of the show. We have some exciting news about the future of this podcast and a way that you can support us. So stay tuned for that later. But first, as always, let's check in with Walt. Fantasyland is the world of imagination, hopes, and dreams. It is dedicated to the young and the young in heart, to those who believe that when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. Come with me to King Arthur's carousel, to see an elephant fly, to dig for diamonds in the dwarf's gold mine, and to ride a pirate ship through the sky. That was a clip from the 1956 long-playing record, Walt Disney Takes You to Disneyland, the very first Disney Park soundtrack to be released. It was also the first non-soundtrack album ever produced and released entirely by Disneyland Records, and the only album ever featuring Walt himself. The record featured Walt giving a tour of his new park, with instrumental music and sound effects representing the various lands. Music was provided by Oliver Wallace, George Bruns, and Tutti Camerata. It was also released as a series of 45 singles, with each land receiving its own uh, 45 record. A year later, the album was re-released as A Day at Disneyland, with Walt's narration replaced by one featuring Jiminy Cricket. This also served as the first of the Disneyland Records Storyteller series, and it coincided with a wave of new park album releases. These included Meet Me Down on Main Street, a barbershop quartet album featuring the Mellow Men, and a release spotlighting the Golden Horseshoe Review. 1958 saw another storyteller release, 
A Christmas Adventure in Disneyland. The 1960s were a big time for Park album releases, with records coming out for It's a Small World, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Pirates of the Caribbean, and The Enchanted Tiki Room. This only increased in the 1970s with a huge wave of titles such as The Haunted Mansion, The Country Bear Jamboree, The Hall of Presidents, America Sings, and The Orange Bird. Live musical acts in the parks also got their own releases, such as The Adventureland Steel Drum Band, The Walt Disney World Band, and 1973's A Musical Souvenir of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. But it wasn't until 1980, amazingly, that we got a comprehensive park soundtrack with the official album of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, which is what we're talking about on these episodes of our show. This was the first park release to combine songs from different attractions and give a real tour of all the big-name shows. The official album of Epcot Center followed in 1983, adding that park's attractions to the musical mix. This kicked off a wave of similar releases. New park albums would initially take several years between releases, but this accelerated as time went by. The dawn of the CD age allowed albums to become longer and feature more content, and the releases slowly became more elaborate, eventually becoming multiple disc albums and beyond. And a lot of that progress is due to one man, somebody very much admired among the Disney musical community, and that is Mr. Randy Thornton. Jeff, uh, Randy is quite a guy. Oh, yes. And he's not only in charge of the official album, but works a lot at, at Disney to preserve and release recordings that have been put away in the Disney vault for years and bring forth, you know, demos and all kinds of exciting projects. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, also finds things that never really existed uh, in the form of like lost chords type things that only existed maybe as sheet music and were never even recorded and brings them helps bring them to life. So he has done a fantastic job of archiving, preserving and releasing both film and theme park music. And we were thrilled to be able to talk to him this month for the podcast. Yes. We're very excited to have Randy. I mean, I have so many questions. I could sit down with Randy for a whole day and keep asking him questions, but he was very gracious uh, with his time with us and, and we had a great time chatting about the history of Disneyland records and the official album and, and more, you know, on the subject of park albums, which is what we're discussing on the last episode in this episode, uh, we talked a lot about how they evolved over the years and how we went from the tracks on this record, which are, you know, you take something like Grim Grinning Ghosts or Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me at only a couple minutes long and how he turned them into these real developed suite of attraction music. So uh, let's, let's hear a little from him about that and about how the albums evolved over the years. When I was given the opportunity to start doing the official albums, um, I I wanted to do things that, you know, I wanted to hear when I was a kid and, you know, hearing more of, you know, the parlor organ and the ballroom sequence and expanding the song to where you can hear more of uh, the song, even though, you know, it's the same minute and a half, just sung differently. And to give you a, a musical ride through, as opposed to a full attraction ride through, um, same with pirates, you know, I, I wanted to do the same uh, kind of thing there too. 
just to give you that sort of taste, you know, when I got to do the uh, Disneyland box set, that's when I went in and, you know, we did the whole ride-through kind of experience uh, kind of thing. Part of the thing is also, you know, I uh, started doing the official albums. Uh, and, you know, again, everything up to then was just, you know, essentially regurgitated tracks from the original 1980 album, the Epcot album, maybe a couple of new things like, you know, uh, the droid rooms from original Star Tours <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and then it kind of altered a little bit, and then, you know, they started putting on, you know, like the Ballad of Davy Crockett to represent Frontierland, I mean, the actual soundtrack version. Huh. And th- that uh, kind of bugged me a bit. Uh, the first one I did was, uh, I think it was 1999 for Disney World. <laughs> and there were several things that were all outdated, and, you know, I wanted to update those, but I couldn't do it all at once. So if you remember, for about four or five years in a row, I was able to update uh, the album and replacing tracks with the newer versions and, and those kinds of things. And by 2005, I had essentially replaced everything uh, that had been out there before uh, with newer or cleaner. I even redid Haunted Mansion um, from what I did in the late 90s um, because Imagineering had found the original stereo recordings. Oh, wow. So we redid it again with the stereo recordings. Yeah, this was a very exciting period because, uh, you know, growing up, it was always extremely exciting when a new soundtrack came out, but that was only really every, like, five to ten years. Uh, it was right. very rare. But this window, when you started doing it, and it was maybe, you know, every other year or so, I can't remember what the exact cadence was, but... yeah it was always what's going to be next because you could tell that you were, and of course, you know, those of us on like the music message boards, you know, obsessively, you know, what's Randy going to do this time? You know, you do pirates and then a mansion and then splash mountain would come out on the next one. And it was, it, you could tell that you were kind of working your way through it, just kind of bit attraction by attraction. When, when I did the glut of them, it was to update the things and, you know, create new stuff as we had talked about. And then, you know, there hadn't been some new stuff. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, we also get from the fans a lot is, oh, it's the same old stuff all over again. You know, this is a different model than any other album ever produced. This album is updated. You know, I'm not going to take It's a Small World off to put something else on there, right. you know. Um, no. And now there's, going, there's probably going to be one within the next year or so with all the new material uh, coming in, um, you know, Mickey's Runaway Railway for one, and a lot of the new area music that they're putting in at Epcot and, and those kinds of things. So instead of putting together an album just for one track, we've waited until there's multiple tracks that we can put on there to where it's much more of a fresh idea. Listening to that, you start to see how, uh, how the park album really started to make a quantum leap in quality starting, you know, late 1990s, early two thousands. Yeah. And you see all the things that, you know, we can find charming or frenetic about this soundtrack gets smoothed out and becomes more of a very literal experience. A you are there experience through the years with Randy's work on it. It's very evocative of being there 
Uh, he is really great at at making that souvenir that you can take home with you and feel like you're back there. Right. It's it's really the art of. I mean, it's like making a mixtape for somebody. Uh, you're making a mixtape that's a walk through of the park, and that's what he does so well. And we're super grateful to him for doing it. And uh, we have, as I said, a long, long, long chat with him uh, that'll be coming up on our next episode. So stick around for that for sure. That's right. So stay tuned for that. And let's go ahead and jump in to side B. Absolutely. Before we start, I just want to share some musical thanks for people who were nice enough to share some musical content with me on Twitter that I was looking for as background research for this episode. Uh, Todd Horan of the Main Street Monologue podcast, and to David Landon and Figment Forever on Twitter. Uh, thanks, guys, for sharing your treasure trove of stuff. Uh, it helped digging up some of these little nuggets from the past. So thanks a lot. first song of side b is a disneyland band performing king mickey mickey mouse march i think this is a great choice for the start of side b here yeah this would also have been a good choice to lead off the album i feel like right i think the other way uh, yeah the only other way i could see the album going was lead off with this and end with main street electrical parade Ah. to get that kind of feel of the day but uh yeah this is a great way to kick off the side because you got to have that band up front for disney Absolutely. This track is actually from the Walt Disney World band record that was released in 1972 with the same production team as a musical souvenir. There was Jim Christensen on the arrangement, Tom Durrell with the recording, Jack Wagner producing. It's a dream team. Yeah, that's right. This record exists on streaming platforms now, which makes me so happy. You can find it on Spotify and YouTube. But it's interesting they felt the need to change the name to Disneyland Band for this record. Who knows? Uh, The Mickey Mouse Club March was such a big song from the 50s to around the 80s. I mean, it was up there with When You Wish Upon a Star and Zippity Doodah as the most played songs around Disney. Oh, yeah. It was everywhere, and it would be folded into every show and every, you know, live performance like this. And, yeah, it was... It was a really prominent tune back then. This song was written by Jimmy Dodd, the great Jimmy Dodd, who we mentioned on the Side A episode in relation to the Enchanted Tiki Room. Jimmy was originally hired to write a pencil song for Disney at the recommendation of his tennis partner, the legendary animator and future Imagineer Bill Justice. That is so random. It is very random. After performing the song for Walt Disney, Walt himself picked Dodd to be one of the adult Mouseketeers, along with longtime storyman Roy Williams. Dodd would go on to write a lot of music for Disney in a few short years, a lot of them geared toward children, and a lot of them fairly moralistic, but all of them infectious. And I have made a bit of a Jimmy Dodd medley for your enjoyment. Nice. Here's a trip through some of his great songs for Disney. I'm no fool, no sirree, I want to live to be nice. 
Just look inside this book and you will see Everything from A to down to Z In the encyclopedia E-N-C-Y-C-L-O-P-E-D-I-A Lonely guitar Do you miss our España? Lonely guitar, she's so far, far away. I wonder tonight, are her stars shining bright in the heavens? And does her breeze kiss the trees while the doves and the nightingales play? You are a human animal You are a very special breed For you are the only animal Who can think, who can reason, who can read The cow goes moo, the dog goes rough The cat meows and the horse kicks up his hoof And so the only human animal is you Great Jimmy Dodd. Wow, that is that 
<laughs> that's an amazing mix of songs and several of which I had no idea that he was responsible for those um, mouse club songs like the encyclopedia and I'm no fool and you're the human animal were so, you know, we grew up seeing those in reruns on the Disney channel. Right. And those are songs that have stuck in my head for what, like 30 years because they're so catchy and he just had such a gift for a catchy tune. But one of those songs as that you discovered was his, I didn't even know what it was right. until you found it. And neither did I. <laughs> yeah. And the song that we have a long past with and like a subliminal past, but didn't even realize. That's right. It's a song, Hi to You, and it's from the Mickey Mouse Club, but it's a, a little bit lesser known song from the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> and it factors into a lot of... Uh, park music that we've heard through the years. I mean, it is the first song that plays on that Walt Disney world band record. That is so strange. More notably, it plays in a favorite of our, uh, childhood viewing. Yes. The, uh, Delta airlines, Walt Disney world vacation planning video from, I guess, 93 or 94. One of those, um, it has that as the underscore. Right. And, you know, I told Jeff when he revealed this knowledge to me that I just always assumed uh, it's it's like from Alice in Wonderland or something like that. You know, and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of in the back of my mind. I recognize it, but I don't really know what it is. But you'd hear the band play it or something. But no, it was this obscure Mickey Mouse Club song from Jimmy Dodd. And right? Who knew? I did not. Jimmy is one of my favorite figures in Disney history. He seems just to be generally loved by everyone he had dealings with. He seems to approach the Fred Rogers level of just good people who happen to be called up onto a big stage. Yeah. And, and that's always good to hear because, you know, somebody in that kind of a role, you know, you can easily find out years later that they were a total creep and right. that would be, that would be a huge bummer, but everybody as you say, speaks so highly of him and just says he was a super nice guy. Yeah. Jimmy and Roy Williams, they were, they were great for their roles. And man, that Mickey mouse club had so much young talent that cut their teeth on that show. I mean, they did so much, so many episodes, so much content on every episode. It was really training. I mean, we talked about buddy Baker a couple of episodes ago. He was a musical director for it for a while. He worked on it. I think Bill Walsh worked on it. I mean, all these people mm -hmm. who would go on to do live action film worked on Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. And it was it's kind of at the dawn of Disney really doing live action anything. So a lot of those art directors and designers and, you know, people who would go on to work on Disneyland uh, worked on, uh, you know, sets and backgrounds and designs for Mickey Mouse Club because it was really one of the first chances the studio had to do live action, anything. So a lot of people cut their teeth there. Right. And Jimmy also wrote that, that song. Lonely guitar was for Zorro written for Zorro. So he was, uh, put around the studio. He, he would write over 400 songs in his career. He acted in several movies. And one of his stranger claims to fame is he wrote the official song of the district of Columbia which was the result of a 1951 competition Motorola sponsored. 
Wow. Now, as Dodd was the winner, he was brought to the nation's capital and wined and dined and feted, but eventually the sheen would wear off on this song with certain people in the district, and the song would fade into a bit of obscurity. But we have a version here from a 78 record released at the time. This is performed by the Capitol Theater Orchestra and sung by Roy Roberts, and it's still one of the official songs of Washington, D.C. Here is the uh, Washington song by Jimmy Dodd. What do you think about that that tune there, Michael? That's uh, that is a lot to handle, man. I think they should have had is, Jimmy sing it, man. Get Jimmy to sing it. I know he would have he would have had a little more charm to it than old Roy. <laughs> Roy was kind of aiming for the rafters with that. Strident, one, but, uh, yeah. That's some uh, like George M. Cohan flag waving material right there. Yes, it is wild. Unfortunately, Jimmy was taken from the world too soon. He had a heart defect that kept him from serving in World War II and had stints in the hospital through the 50s and 60s. It just boggles my mind that he kept up a workload like he did while he was ill. There were so many Mickey Mouse Club episodes, so many other songs, and in fact, Jimmy was working on a show called Jimmy Dodd's Aloha Time in Hawaii at the time of his death in 1964. He was only 54 years old. You wonder what he would have done with another decade or so of work. At, at least. I mean, 54, that is very young these days. And I, it's just shocking to think that we lost him that soon. And, I mean, Jimmy Dodd's Aloha Time. That sounds like it would be the best really does i'm i'm so sad for the world that we don't have jimmy dodd's aloha time because that is just filled with promise that title indeed it really is that's it's too bad so let's uh kick off side b here here is the disneyland band performing <laughs> king mickey mickey mouse march Mickey 
Well, if the Mickey Mouse Club March seems infectious, we will raise you with this next one. It's the theme of the happiest cruise that ever sailed. It's a small world. It's, it's a small world. This song would be one of the feathers in the cap of the Sherman Brothers, although there has been a lot of grief, too, about just how infectious this song is. I have to say, in the past 10 years or so, more and more this attraction has become one of my very favorites in all the Disney parks. Of course, Mary Blair's design on it is a big part of that, but also the Sherman's music, Walt's message, this attraction is very special, and I'm here to stand against those who poo-poo it. Yes. I I am anti, anti, it's a small world. I'm anti-poo-poo. I, I think this is just something that people who grow up with the parks take for granted. And kind of as you get older, you just kind of write it off. But when you look at it in the context of the creative team behind it and its uh, pedigree, which we're going to talk about, and uh, especially since I got to go to Disneyland and see the original Right. the original attraction and feel like, you know, you're writing the original version. And I uh, got to say, I'm a big fan. I'm not always crazy about holiday layovers of attractions, but the Christmas version of it's a small world that they do at Disneyland is absolutely fantastic. It really is. It is. I mean, this it's just, I think, Something about it is just very special. And like you said, a lot of people got called into it who were legendary. And uh, it was, of course, designed for the 1964 World's Fair and was designed very last minute, in fact. I mean, that's kind of why all these people get brought in. Yes. UNICEF and Pepsi approached Disney in 1963 to develop the attraction for the fair the next year. And Admiral Joe Fowler would turn them down before Walt found out and reversed this decision, which I think is hilarious and would love to see that meeting get down. Yeah, Walt's like, no, we'll do it. I think it was Joan Crawford who was like, uh, hey, you're not doing our thing. He's like, what? Right. We'll do it. Sure. I mean, that is just amazing. They put this together in a year. Yeah. I mean, Walt had an idea in the hopper. He had been kicking an idea of a boat ride with the children of the world living together in peace for a while. Uh, in fact, the ride would initially be called the children of the world. Much like the Tiki Room, a mock-up would be made at the, the studio and the Shermans would be brought in to troubleshoot and make the attraction work better. For a while, Walt had toyed with all the dolls singing the national anthems of their own respective countries. That result would have been... Pretty rough, I think. What about you, Michael? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that... <laughs> there are a lot of national anthems that aren't very uh, melodic to begin <laughs> yeah. with, and hearing them all together would have been even worse. So it's glad they didn't go with that. So the Shermans were, again, made to write a song to explain all this. And they would devise a song that would be a round, allowing for a layering of different translations over a consistent melody. And this song would kind of be penned as more of a ballad in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Richard Sherman describes it as a child's prayer for peace. And if you haven't ever heard his rendition of Small World as a ballad, it's kind of interesting to uh, hear. I'll play a little bit of it here. But you can definitely hear how it is. The lyrics and the tune can be translated in a different way than they came out. Here's a little bit of that. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears, 
It's a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. There is just one moon. Uh, you can hear the uh, the seriousness of the message there. Yeah, and I think for people who sleep on this attraction and make fun of this song, once you hear Richard talk about the creation of it and their intent and hear him perform that version, I think that would probably change a lot of minds about it. Yeah. As we said that this song would go on to acclaim and some ridicule, it's infectious nature, both a blessing and a curse, I guess. I mean, they're clowning it in the Lion King, their own movie. But in looking through versions of this song, I found a real treat, Michael, and I can't wait to play it for you. Here is a cover version of It's a Small World that I found from 1967. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. 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 It's a small, small world. The great Maurice Chevalier with his cover of It's a Small World from 1967's A Musical Tour of France with Maurice Chevalier. Well, the French classic, It's a Small World. I can see. I love that it's 1967 because the idea that that and Sgt. Pepper are coming out in the same year is something else. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Let Maurice Chevalier sing along. I'm a big Maurice Chevalier guy, and I'm sure that, I mean, the Shermans were too. I think he had performed a song of their father's, correct? Oh, yeah, that's right. He had. But, that's um, correct. He could have taken a little bit longer to learn the phrasing of the chorus. It's not that complicated, but. <laughs> I know. He kind of lays on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Asynchronous. Whatever. I don't know. That's an interesting rendition. I was not expecting that. Pre-Aristocats. Yes. Maybe a gateway to Aristocats. This guy's got something here. Post-Glampon. The version of It's a Small World on the 1980 soundtrack is the finale room from the original attraction, which appears on Walt Disney Presents It's a Small World an LP that was released in 1964. This is one of the first attraction LPs that was released after the Tiki Room. I misspoke on the last episode and I said it was 68. It was really 64. So this was probably the second one. Also in 1965, there was another release of Walt Disney Presents It's a Small World, 18 Favorite Folk Songs. Another LP with a kid's choir singing songs from around the world. And of course, there's a storybook record in Walt Disney, It's a Small World with the Song, released in 1968 and re-released in 1978. And we had that when we were growing up. Yeah, we sure did. That was that was an interesting, because you wonder, how do you make a story out of It's a Small World? With the song. With the song. <laughs> and they did have the song, and they did have a story of... As with everything of the era in which we grew up, a wee orphan boy 
yeah. getting separated and taking a ride on It's a Small World. I remember being at a certain age being like, there are more details to this attraction than I ever knew from the storybook record. And then later on being like, there, that is not, that's not right. That's not real. <laughs> so the arranger for this version, the original 1964 version of the attraction was Bobby Hammock. Hammock was a freelance arranger and music director, often working in television, but also leading combos that performed under his name. From 1958 to 63, Hammock was the West Coast music director for ABC, conducting and scoring music for Red Skelton, Ed Sullivan, and others. Hammock would also orchestrate the movie Summer Magic, which probably explains his selection here, as the Sherman Brothers would also write songs for this. Michael Buddy Baker worked on this. Bobby Hammock, the Shermans. That's a heck of a music department. Why do you think this movie doesn't make it out much? I don't know. Because it's great. Burl Ives, Haley Mills. Yes. And, uh, Deborah Wally. It's um, it's not even on Disney Plus, which I hate because I, I really, you know, it's just kind of one of those pleasant movies that Disney did during this period where not a lot happens, but it's just real pleasant. And it's got a great soundtrack full of songs that people who have never even heard of the movie would recognize because they play on Main Street. Right. Flittering. That's flittering. That's right. Back to Mr. Bobby Hammock. He, he deserves a ton of credit for this. Uh, it's truly incredible, not only in the interpretation of the Sherman's simple song, but developing it for this attraction where it co-ops so many different cultures and is responsible for all blending together. A part of this is a brilliantly simple formula the Shermans had where the verse served as a counterpoint to the chorus. So the chords remained the same and one could easily bleed over the other melody-wise. Uh, this ride is pretty long and you have music playing throughout, so many different elements. It really is just a huge part of this ride experience. So I thought I'd play just a little bit of some sections of this arrangement.
So, I mean, just so many different things he's doing that's bleeding all together. It's, it's really amazing to me. It, yes, it is. And all, you know, all incredibly timeless feeling, except for that one sort of jazz band yes. uh, that always cracks me up. Yeah. It is so of its era, but everything else is super timeless. And uh, just gives those good vibes of that being in that queue area with that water smell coming up in those fountains. And uh, it's a really atmospheric thing. That's right. So let's hear this version of It's a Small World from the 1980 soundtrack. Here it is. It's a Small World. Up next, we have the Adventureland Steel Drum Band with PP99. This is yet again another gem from the Musical Souvenir album. And this is peak Disney Park music for me, Michael. Yes, this is... Man, this may be one of the the highlights. Well, it is one of the highlights. Maybe one of the top highlights of this record for me. This is such a great atmospheric track. And it's you know, pure, pure Adventureland. That's right. So again, geographically, we're all over the place. Energy-wise, we're right on time. So they're 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 doing it by a different kind of rubric here. 
but it feels nice. It feels nice coming out of a coming out of small world. It's a real propulsion to it, and uh, this this song I love playing. I mentioned the last episode. Um, I played a late night radio show DJ for a brief time, and this was a mainstay of almost every set. I would play the this song. <laughs> That's it's great. great filler. That's great. Well, it takes it up a notch. It really kicks things into high, man. That's right. This is from Walt Disney World's Steel Drum Band, also called JP and the Silver Stars. It was led by Junior Pouchet, who was originally from Trinidad. The Silver Stars band name predates Disney. It was formed in the early 1950s, originally named The Valentinos, which changed to the Silver Stars in 1954, named after the decorations of their drums. Junior became a leader around this time and began to develop his skills in arranging and composition and was a big part of developing the steel drum band medium with both arrangements and the makeup of ensembles. This is what really blows my mind that this group goes back this far. It also reminds me of Mariachi Cobre at Epcot, who have a long, 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 long career, longer than you would ever have expected. And to find out that the Silver Stars goes back to the 1950s, that's wild. I know. I immediately thought of Mariachi Cabre, too. And that these bands, kind of independent bands, would go on for decades in these parks. It's kind of amazing. So, Pouchet drove the band to new heights, which would allow him to eventually play in Bermuda and Los Angeles, catching the eye of the folks at Disney who were putting together their entertainment lineup for Walt Disney World. There they would play for decades, mostly in Adventureland, but they would be sometimes featured in parades. The band ended its run in 2002, which is really a shame. I really miss seeing these guys. I, th- I think that this is one of those groups, everybody has their druthers over old groups of the past that they would like to see come back. But this, for me, is prime amongst them, probably at the top. I really miss their vibe. We lost them not too long after the Aladdin spinner was put in that area, kind of where their bandstand used to be. And then, you know, in the sort of downturn after September 11th, I don't know if that played a part in it or not, but they were such a long, long time part of the fabric of that park. I would love to see them back in some form. Absolutely. It was such a great bit of atmosphere. In 1976, Disney would release the Walt Disney World Adventureland Steel Band LP. And this is a fantastic record. First of all, you have the band in the on the front in a courtyard of the Caribbean Plaza, which is great. Then they have a medley from the musical Hair, so you know it's got to be good. There's some contemporary tunes and original. You've got Swan Lake on there. you got Small World. It's a fun, fun record, and I just can't imagine what a different time period to have a band from a land be featured on its own record. Yeah, something as sort of esoteric as the Steel Band from Adventureland get a big, like, prominent LP record. And this is a, you know, one that fetches big, big bucks on the secondary market. You know, people are, it's not very common, and people are always on the lookout for this one. So it is uh, quite a find when you manage to get your hands on one because people really love that. There's another Jack Wagner joint. This particular song called PP99, also sometimes arranged under the title Adventureland Delight, was written by an artist named Lord Kitchener, born Aldwin Roberts in Trinidad. 
Now, Kitchener is known as the Grand Master of Calypso by some and is one of the few artists responsible for the genre's spread throughout the world. Calypso blended Latin and African sensibilities and rhythms and often included social and political commentary with some innuendo and insult thrown in at times, and Kitchener embraced all this in his works. Both Pouchet and Kitchener would perform and compete in the carnivals in Trinidad, which seemed like a, quite a big deal in establishing certain groups. And when Kitchener moved to England in 1948, he would be responsible for carnival showing up there as well. Kitchener took the UK by storm, earning a fan in Princess Margaret and eventually opening up his own club. But after 14 years, he would head back home to live in Trinidad and continue recording until his death in the year 2000. Lord Kitchener is perhaps best known for his song Jump in the Line, which was recorded by Harry Belafonte and showcased in Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. That is shocking to me that the same guy is responsible for PP99 <laughs> it, who wrote Jump in the Line. That's yes. amazing. I'm not as surprised that Princess Margaret's right. a fan. Well, though. yeah, no, obviously not. Uh, I was always confused about who, you know, if the, I always assumed this was an original because of the titling, yes. but it's not. The arrangement is excellent. We'll get to that in a minute. But I first wanted to play the original version, Lord Kitchener's version from 1971's LP Curfew Time. This is a timely <laughs> release for the Silver Stars to pick up on. I'm going to drive me pee, pee regardless of what they say. They could come and hold me when they see it park up day. I'm tired with the record, with their childish behavior. As soon as you stop, they come in like a cobo to pick you up. I'm going to park me pee, pee any place, any place, any place. With me big fat bamboo in the waist, so... He's a lovely Jaguar, everybody know he's mine Registration number, well it's PP99 She's a very fast mover, with a lot of horsepower. So, the record should know that they are moving this pee so Seems like you can't mess up that one. It feels really good. And that <laughs> no. version, too. Some Dr. No vibes on that. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I, you mentioned that this is something that I would I never thought growing up was a a song that had been released outside of the parks or anything you just assumed it was existed for the purpose of the Adventureland Steel Drum Band on this record and didn't realize it had a history like this so right it's very catchy very catchy it is a lord kitchener's son kenneth would play with the steel band at Walt Disney World so he had an in without further ado let's hear this Adventureland Steel Drum Band its version of PP99 from the 1980 soundtrack. Here goes. Mm-hmm. 
next is a fairly svelte rendition of the theme park classic Grim Grinning Ghosts from the Haunted Mansion. There are some familiar names here, lyrics again by Exitencio, and though we haven't mentioned him much in relation to this soundtrack, the music is by Disney music great Buddy Baker. Baker is a real force in the 1964 World's Fair attraction, so he's really ramping up in his involvement, not only in the studio, but the parks at this time. Yeah, that's right. It's funny that he really didn't get his, he obviously got his start in film, but I think of him now as just being such a theme parks guy because he yeah. did that for the last, you know, 40 years of his career and was so dominant. But right. yeah, this was kind of the start of all things. This title comes from Shakespeare, from the poem Venus and Adonis, which uh, I have to read the stanza because it's Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare. Hard favored tyrant, ugly, meager, lean, hateful divorce of love. Thus chides she death. Grim grinning ghost, earth's worm, what dost thou mean? Who knew? X is at it again. His lyrics here are, in my opinion, some of his very best. He's playing a lot with alliteration and uh, and also, like Pirates, it shows signs of heavy research, you know. Another familiar name here is Thurl Ravenscroft performing the lead vocal along with a group that is not the Mellow Men, his usual ensemble. He is joined by Chuck Schroeder, Bob Wright, Jay Myers, and Vern Rowe, and all of them perform as the singing busts in the attraction. There's some great visual acting by Thurl here, but but I did not know this was not the Melomen, Michael. No, I always assumed that it was his usual group, but I guess they picked people with good faces for spooky busts. And Thurl is like, I could see how you could think it wasn't even him singing just because his, his face is so perfect. Like he's somebody they would cast just for the face for this. Right. It is perfect. We, we talked a little bit about Thurl in the first episode in relation to the Tiki Room, also as Buff and the Country Bears. Thurl was such a busy man, both in and out of Disney, and the Mellow Men provided so much music for Disney, including the early theme park music LP, Meet Me Down on Main Street, in 1957. They also did the oft-mentioned for our podcast, Ballad of Davy Crockett, the themes to Zorro and the Mickey Mouse Club, The Wonderful World of Color, and one of my most favorite roles as the Pound Hounds in Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> I'm not sure why they all weren't involved in this project, but at least we have Thurl. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of those distinctive voices. Once you know it, you hear it everywhere. Right. You know, Melamin, Billy, and Bill Cole would join him in several attractions, including the Tiki Room and the Country Bear Jamboree. But Thurl would be the most prolific member, not only singing in the Mellow Men and other studio chorus ensembles, but narrating many a Disneyland record, including Stories and Song from the Haunted Mansion record, which is quite an interesting record if you have not heard that one. It stars a young Ron Howard and Pete Renaday as the ghost host, correct? Yeah, yes, that's right. So, a lot of multi-talented voice actors there. Well, luckily for us, this is a rare case where we know the session players for this song, so I wanted to name them and talk about them just a bit before we listen to the song. This song was recorded on April 18th, 1969 on the recording stage at the Disney Studios. I'm assuming this is the Sherman Brothers soundstage now. A lot of the, the Haunted Mansion music was recorded this same week. The combo featured Jess 
bourgeois on the upright bass. Bourgeois, like a lot of these folks, started in the big band era. He played for Kay Kaiser. Shout out Kay Kaiser. Kay Kaiser, fellow Carolina boy. That's right. Uh, Later, he was the upright bass player for George Bruns' Wonderland Jazz Band. Uh, meaning he was on the records deep in the heart of Dixieland and Cliff Edwards's Ukulele Ike Sings Again. Classic. Yes. Next up is bass guitarist Al Hendrickson. I can only assume that the upright and the electric basses are kind of doubling the same part. You have the wonderful little guitar pick attack on the bass guitar. It's very trebly in and of itself, giving it a nice little punch, and the upright bass brings that low end. Hendrickson was one of the most prolific guitarists of his time, getting his start with Artie Shaw in the 1940s, playing with such greats as Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller, and going on to play on sessions for tons of people in the 50s through the 70s. He ventured into some pop and rock, played on a ton of Monkees records, Percy Faith, Louis Armstrong, Elvis, Sinatra, you name it. And I think it's amazing that he is a bass guitar player on this. I mean, you have one of the most used guitar players in the world. He's not even on guitar. Uh, his contribution is really great. That feel on electric bass is really driving a lot of the energy. Uh, I think it's probably a Fender 6 guitar, which is kind of like a guitar outfitted as a bass, but it's a really cool little punchy line. Yeah, it really gives it that kind of roots it in an, in an era, this real uh, funky, funky little bass part. Right. So on guitar, no slouch here. In fact, Alan Roos may be able to top Al Hendrickson in the amount of records he recorded on. These two must have worked together often. Uh, They're involved with a lot of similar acts. Roos started with Benny Goodman and stuck to a slightly more jazzy track than Hendrickson, playing with Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, and so on. He played on Tootie's Trumpets and Trombones by Tootie Camerata, uh, so I wonder if that may have been his entree. But mainly that was just an excuse to mention Tootie's Trumpets and Trombones, which is one of my favorite titles of anything. But I love this guitar part. It's really funny to me how pop and contemporary it is, as this guy was playing in the 30s and really involved in jazz. But it's really kind of stays as a rhythmic element. It sounds so great. I love this guitar. Yeah, it's really good. I said about the sort of the bass rooting it in an era. The guitar really roots it in an era. Yes. And uh, it is, uh, you know, we, we joke a lot about how, like, movies of this time would always have the kids listening to their, like, uh, transistor radio <laughs> with the generic <laughs> twangy guitar. Sea shaggy but, DA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, twangy guitar band, anonymous band going on. And this is that very sort of sound of age. But it is amazing that these people were just such incredibly accomplished studio musicians. And they uh, all came together on this one. Right. Uh, Chet Record is on percussion for this. And Chet played in the Phantom Five, which is the wacky little graveyard band that they have in the Haunted Mansion as well. Chet played drums for Phil Harris, a Disney great. And like a lot of these guys, he was involved in some soundtrack work, notably those Callaways for Disney. Interestingly, that Chet was also a part of the Beach Boys Smile Sessions, uh, playing marimba on those. It makes me wonder how close to this recording session he was doing marimba for Smile. Another world colliding, Michael. 
Yeah, that is a really weird connection. Yes. Uh, similar, similar feel, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, probably. <laughs> similar spirit. Similar. Yeah, it's a very similar tone uh, of both sessions. Lastly, Marvin Ash was on the organ. Marvin was a stride piano player who grew up in the Midwest with a love of New Orleans style playing. He played a lot in the George Bruns orbit. Um, he played with the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 at times. He was in the aforementioned Wonderland Jazz Band with Bruns. And he played a lot at Disneyland, which is pretty cool. He was also involved at the studio and notably played piano and did some arranging for the Mickey Mouse Club. So oh, this Mickey Mouse Club keeps coming back. Everybody's working on the Mickey Mouse Club. But that is quite the band for the Graveyard Band. Yeah, there no lack of talent there. Some of the best yeah. guys around. I mean, this track feels so great. And it's so, again, like a lot of these tracks, uh, there's not much going on, but the energy of every part is making it feel so good. And it's interesting that when we talked to Randy Thornton, he mentioned that everything in this attraction is on a minute and three second loop. Sure enough, uh, this is another one. But I guess it was just an Omnimover thing that they timed out. But, uh, you know, everything looped around it after a minute and three seconds. So this is what we got. <laughs> Which is so crazy because you think of the ride as such an epic experience, like right. a long form experience. And you, you know, back in the day listening to this track on this record, you think, well, that's a really short track for this big experience. But, you know, it's a complete, it's a complete loop. But it, they just somehow, you know, it's masterful technologically, masterful from a storytelling perspective, being able to weave all this sort of nonsense together into like a one bigger experience that feels like a whole experience. That's right. Uh, this adds to the frenetic feel of this side of the record. But uh, I'm also thankful for Randy's work in fleshing out these, you know, putting a couple of these loops together in a sequence that kind of gives you more of a feel of the actual attraction. But I mean, this is fun in and of itself, of course, you know, absolutely. And the sound is just an iconic, you know, all, all these instrumentalists playing together. Uh, the orchestration of it is just a really iconic orchestration in sort of Disney park lore. It's unmistakable. Yeah. It sounds very great and very specific. So let's hear it. Uh, from the 1980 soundtrack, here is Grim Grinning Ghosts. When the crypt doors creak and the tombstones quake, happy haunts materialize and begin to vocalize. Grim Grinning Ghosts come out to socialize. Now don't close your eyes and don't try to hide. For a silly spook may sit by your side, shrouded in a dark disguise. As the moon climbs high over the dead oak tree, so for the midnight tree. creepy creeps with eerie eyes start to shriek and harmonize. Grim ghosts come to socialize. When you hear the knell of a requiem bell, where spirits well. Restless bones etherialize. Rises books of every size. <laughs> 
Up next, we have the song Swanee River, performed by the Royal Street Bachelors, a little taste of New Orleans Square and Disneyland. This is interesting as it is obviously not on the musical souvenir record from Walt Disney World that a lot of this live ensemble music is, but there is another version of Swanee River that appears on that record. And that one, a little bit more upbeat version by the group The Banjo Kings. I wondered if they tried putting it in here and it wasn't working, so they switched to a group from New Orleans Square. Either way, it opens up a new area of the parks that it represents. And it is such a nice reset from the wild ride we've had so far on this side, not to mention a great transition to what's to come. Yeah, it's a nice, like, mellow little piece. Uh, this is, you know, we talked about uh, <laughs> on the on the last episode, my youthful, uh, cool cat, uh, Scott Joplin fixation. Uh, also, in uh, middle school, I was first chair clarinet in the band. Hey. Cool guy. And uh, this was a big inspiration for that. And I would always uh, try to kind of uh, play a little Swanee River on the clarinet inspired <laughs> by this. <laughs> I do think clarinet is a very cool instrument. So I don't think that's not cool. Swanee River is actually entitled Old Folks at Home, and it was written by the legendary Stephen Foster, who was known as the father of American music. Foster lived only 37 years, and that time he wrote over 200 songs, and so many of them are written into the fabric of American consciousness. Among his compositions are Beautiful Dreamer, O Susanna, Old Kentucky Home, Hard Times Come Again No More, and Camp Town Races. I can't, I can't believe he only lived 37 years. That's it's, shocking. It really is. I it's mean, the old musician thing, but I've actually been to the old Kentucky home. Hey, which inspired old Kentucky home. And, uh, it's a pretty neat little stop for those traveling randomly through the wilds of Kentucky. Man, I am going to have to put that on my list. I missed it on all my trips. I had to go through Kentucky. Of course, with almost everything in America at this time, there is a complicated racial history involved with Stephen Foster. As the most popular musical figure of the 19th century, Foster was responsible for sometimes raising black voices in song, often appropriating the black voice for his own material to varying degrees of outcome, some of which are simply shocking today. I uh, reference the second verse of O Susanna, which lays on one end of the spectrum to the point which I will not even read it here, but you should look it up. And then you have a song like Old Kentucky Tome, which is a song kind of in some ways expressing the horrors of slavery in regards to separating families. And his song Nellie Was a Lady, uh, even in title alone, was groundbreaking for humanizing black women. But Foster would appropriate much more than African-American culture. In fact, he was adept at fusing most of the different musical traditions of Americans' ancestors into a singular style that would be the beginning of American popular music. It's, it's crazy to me that one person is so influential, but he was kind of the first American to really demonstrate making a living off publishing music. And to this day, many of his melodies stand out as unique in their simplicity and distinctiveness and they call forth all these influences at the same time without much flair whatsoever. Yeah, it's, uh, as you say, it's kind of remarkable that what we think of as American popular song really stems from uh, one guy rooted in this tradition. And, I mean, really, when you look at 
American popular culture in the 19th century, uh, blackface minstrelry was like a, this un, unthinkably dominant form of entertainment. Right. And, but he, uh, Foster kind of transcended that and kind of made songwriting a, a, a somewhat loftier thing. Like he started in that tradition, but kind of grew out of it. And grew into like making, you know, music publishing this huge industry and really invented so many of these songs that, as you say, many, many of which we know today. Right. There's a lot of parallels to Scott Joplin, who we discussed inside a one of which, unfortunately, is he would lead a rather tragic life. Um, Foster's life would be colored heavily by alcoholism. It's hard to believe that during this short life that we've been talking about, full of songs, he would even have a dry period of writing uh, due to his lifestyle and addiction. Uh, and it would be alcohol that would bring about his young death and drive him, unfortunately, to a life of poverty. This is just too common a tell in the music world. Yeah, especially in the times before there was any way to really get help or right. uh, you know, take care of yourself. And it's unthinkable for someone who was as popular as he is much like Joplin as popular as Joplin was both of them died in poverty which is just just stunning to think yeah, about absolutely. As, as big as they were so old folks at home was one of several songs that Foster would write for E.P. Christie who ran the Christie Minstrels or Christie's Minstrels one of the most popular minstrel shows of their time uh, and like Michael said, the minstrel show was the heart of the beginning of American mass culture. Really, it was just everywhere. And Foster's works uh, were prominent in this most popular troupe. They were performing in blackface with songs, comedy, slapstick parody, and so on. Uh, in fact, the minstrel show, along with the medicine show, are direct ancestors of vaudeville, which would take over as the major form of entertainment towards the end of the century. But Man, it's just such a bizarre... If you look at the minstrel show and look up what was common, it is just so strange and bizarre to me. It's such a strange sort of unthinkable tradition and, you know, a society that was both sort of entranced and also wanted to demean blackness. Right. That they were just so drawn to it, but they couldn't, you know, abide watching actual black performers. So they, you know, these white people came in and did it. It was a very, very strange thing. And even more strange considering just how dominant it was. And so much of our culture, things that we are completely unaware of today, are, are rooted in it. Yes. And because sort of everything that goes back to that era touches it pretty much. And... So a lot of things uh, we would be surprised by, uh, phrases even, you know, just colloquial things uh, have a root in that. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing for me is that it seems really bizarre is that the, the new Christy Minstrels, who is a band that I used to listen to a lot, or still do, I yeah. guess, uh, they just arbitrarily chose that name to, you know, it seems like a bizarre choice, but... Yes, very. When I found out about the original Christie Minstrels, that made that made me think. I was like, "What were the, what were the new Christie Minstrels right. thinking <laughs> when they chose that?" That is, 
man, that that would not go over well today. No, no, it wouldn't. Nor no. should it. <laughs> Nor should it. Um, this song became the official song of the state of Florida, Michael, and for years its lyrics have been tweaked to be less offensive. In the original version, there's a lot of phonetic dialect, a la Joel Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus stories. So we see the chorus change from all the world am sad and dreary everywhere I roam. Oh, darkies, how my heart grows weary far from the old folks at home to all the world is sad and dreary everywhere I roam. Oh, dear ones, how my heart is grows weary far from the old folks at home. I guess you understand why that would be changed. Hard to yes. believe. That was yes. the official song of the state of Florida until 2008 when they changed the lyrics. Yikes. But I have to say, it is incredible how many of these songs and melodies make their way down to us through the years. Yeah, it's these fall into like I think that realm of songs that you don't even know, like everybody knows, but you don't know where they came from just because everybody knows them. Like Oh Susanna, like everybody knows. Oh, it's the things you learn in like elementary school, right? In in like elementary school music class. And, like, you don't even think about where they came from just because they've been around forever. Right. I mean, they're just ubiquitous. So, back to Disney. The Royal Street Bachelors was an ensemble that has played in New Orleans Square for decades, down to today. From the beginning to today, they have been there. And for around 25 years, the Bachelors consisted of Jack McVeigh, Harold Grant, and Herb Gordy. Uh, McVeigh had a rather interesting career, originally playing banjo in his father's band, the Howdy Entertainers. He went on to have a novelty hit called Open the Door, Richard, which he recorded in 1947. And I want to play a little bit of that for you right now. Old band's been out to the club having a little ball tonight. My friend Richard went home early, you know. He's got the only key to the house. I'm gonna have to knock on the door to see if I can get in. Open the door, Rich. See, Richard sleeps in the back room. It's kind of hard to hear. Maybe I better knock a little louder. Open the door, Rich. I don't think Richard heard me yet. Knock one more time to see what's gonna happen here. the door, Richard. Open the door and let me in. Open the door, Richard. Richard, why don't you open that door? Open the door, Richard. Open the door and let me in. Open the door, Richard. Richard? Richard, why don't you open that door? That's a pretty classic. Yeah. I swear I've heard that somewhere before. Well, you probably have because it was a pretty popular song. Um, It got recorded by Count Basie and all kinds of other people. (laughs) You still have the novelty song hit it big anymore, do you? That's right. That's right. Uh, Unfortunately, like so many stories in music, he didn't receive proper royalties for this from his record label. And even though all these people went on to record it, he was left out of the financial rewards. Anyway, through the years, he would bounce around leading his band, the Door Openers, 
See, see what he did there? Uh-huh. Doing some freelance gigs. But he finally ended up at Disneyland for the opening of New Orleans Square and held on to the gig until his retirement in 1992. I think it was a major financial great thing for him to have that Disney gig. Yeah, that's good. And it's, I mean, that's one of the things that made the park so special is these people who would, I mean, make it their career and be there for decades and decades and uh, hopefully would do pretty well for themselves too, which is nice. Yeah. But I have to, before we leave Jack McVeigh, I have to say that his, his father was actually the first black DJ in Los Angeles, and he had a 1920s radio show called The Optimistic Donut. <laughs> and I just felt <laughs> I love him already. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Uh, that just needed to be in this show. We may have to change the podcast name. I know. I know. It's so good. On banjo was Harold Grant, and at bass was Herb Gordy. Uh, reportedly the cousin of Barry Gordy from the founder of Motown Records. Wow, weird. And uh, he was the longtime bassist of Jazzer Earl Bostick. Um, And they were a banjo, upright bass, and clarinet trio. They were sometimes joined by others. Uh, In this great arrangement, there's a little drummer uh, lightly playing on board as well. But, you know, this is just a testament to the world-class entertainment that played in these parks at this time and how important it is to the experience in Disney parks. Absolutely. But I mean, these guys had been playing for decades and uh, were, you know, legendary had played with legendary people had done, done the show. And, uh, you know, we see that with the Marvin Ash who played on grim grinning ghost. He went to play at Disneyland. He's, you know, a recording artist played all over the world. It's just really impressive. It is. And you're just so glad these guys could find a home where hopefully they enjoyed doing what they do and were oh, well compensated for it too. That's right. So let's hear this lovely rendition of Swanee River performed by the Royal Street Bachelors. Here it is. <laughs> Would a Disney Park album be without an audio-animatronic show spectacular? On side A, we talked about the legendary Country Bear Jamboree 
And here on Side B, we have a much shorter-lived, but perhaps even more elaborate show, America Sings. America Sings was a Disneyland attraction that was cooked up in the years approaching the United States Bicentennial in 1976. It was the celebration of American popular song, featuring 40 different ditties from the country's past and present. The show was a replacement for Disneyland's Carousel of Progress attraction, which had departed the park in 1973 on its way to a 1975 opening at Walt Disney World. The new musical attraction filled the Carousel Theater's six auditoriums with around 115 audio-animatronics figures and featured a show in four acts of about four minutes each. And, uh, Jeff, this was quite a show. Man, this was a big, big show. It's quite amazing to go back and watch the video. I I don't know if I had seen the whole video of it until we, I mean, I'd seen parts of it, but um, it's amazing. They're really in their prime of a great run of doing these musical audio animatronics spectaculars. They had done the, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse review and Country Bears for the opening of Walt Disney World. And then this, man, something else. Yeah, this was kind of, it just kept upping the ante. And really after this, only Kitchen Cabaret was the only one they ever really did after this. It's a shame it's kind of an abandoned art form because it's something they did so well and just really, really kept escalating the art form. And then it just kind of disappeared, which is Yeah, I feel like this is something that caught on with the outside culture and kind of ended up being bad for disney to keep doing it somehow you know the yeah that's true like chuck e cheese and right like, uh, which I rock fire rock. explosion or whatever right it's wonderful but i do feel like people associate those things together but yeah going on the kitchen cabaret which was also excellent so a great lineup of attractions and this was right in the middle yes the show was created by a couple of true disney legends Imagineers Mark Davis and Albertino. The duo came up with the concept and selected the featured songs. Uh, To do so, they listened to many old recordings and said that they stuck to humorous songs that people might know, staying away from war songs and the like. Uh, We should also mention that the extensive musical score for the show was arranged by the ubiquitous and irreplaceable Buddy Baker. Buddy. Of course. Uh, And uh, the show's many animal characters were designed by Mark Davis in his distinctive style. And this was, in fact, his last big show at WED before he quit due to frustration at management overlooking his attraction pitches, as we've discussed with the Snow Palace. Right. And I mean, this attraction has, you know, Mark Davis design all over it and, and his staging of gags and all that. So it was a great, great note to go out on. Absolutely. Well, and it's made it so easier, as everybody probably knows, these figures wound up being incorporated into Splash Mountain, uh, a feature based on a movie that Mark Davis had worked on doing animation for many decades earlier. And so there's a reason they were able to fit right into that style. It was all that Mark Davis design, that wonderful, wonderful style of his. America Sings was sponsored by Del Monte. (laughs) And it uh, opened with a funky new red, white, and blue paint scheme on June 29th, 1974. The festive event was hosted by Fulton Burley, who we mentioned on our Side A episode, and featured Burl Ives. 
Uh, Ives was the voice of Eagle Sam, one of the two audio animatronic MCs of America Sings. The other was an owl named Ollie, voiced by actor Sam Edwards. Now, I'm going to take a moment to give an overview of these two actors' careers because they pop up in some interesting places. First, we have Burl Ickle Ivanhoe Ives. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Who was born in 1909. He got to start traveling the United States as an itinerant singer and banjoist in the 1930s, where he earned his keep with odd jobs and playing his banjo. Apparently, he was once jailed in Utah for vagrancy and for singing a song called Foggy Dew, which authorities there deemed bawdy. <laughs> uh, Burl started making radio appearances in the 30s before debuting on Broadway in Roger and Hart's The Boys from Syracuse. Uh, the lead of that was his friend Eddie Albert, who would, of course, appear in Disney's Escape to Witch Mountain many, many years later. In 1940, Burl launched his radio show, The Wayfaring Stranger. Yeah. A title of which I am incredibly jealous. <laughs> and uh, the show served to popularize a lot of traditional folk songs, like Big Rock Candy Mountain. So Burl was a folk song guy. Uh, he became big in radio and soon also started appearing in movies where he had his first big hit a rendition of the 17th century English song Lavender Blue, which he performed in the 1949 Disney film So Dear to My Heart, where it was called uh, Lavender Blue Dilly Dilly. It even earned an Oscar nomination for Best Song, so it's interesting that his big debut was also on a Disney feature. And get that up on Disney Plus, too. Is there a Burl oh, Ives? Uh, is there a Burl Ives Disney Plus problem? Or I don't know. He needs to. Well, yeah, it's that foggy, foggy dew uh, yeah. scandal yeah. hanging over his head. Right. Uh, Burl went on to win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for The Big Country in 1958. He also famously narrated the 1964 television special Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. For Disney, he was in Summer Magic in 1963, opposite Haley Mills. And he also did a number of records for Disney's uh, record label, including Burl Ives' Animal Folk and Burl Ives' Folk Lullabies. So we already see that Burl was really deep in the folk tradition and was a kind of a perfect pick for this uh, attraction. Perfect. And the other thing about him is his voice is just unmistakable. Really distinctive, beautiful voice. Uh, you just got to love his delivery. So for something like this, right on the money. Absolutely. Very evocative. Uh, Ollie Owl, on the other hand, was voiced by Sam Edwards, who was born in 1915. And he was, Sam was probably best known for playing the banker on Little House on the Prairie. But for Disney, he was the voice of Adult Thumper in Bambi <laughs> and uh, also appeared in The Absent-Minded Professor, several episodes of The Wonderful World of Disney, Escape to Witch Mountain, The Biscuit Eater, and Scandalous John. And he also did character voices for a range of the Disney Storyteller records. For our interests, our personal interests, he was also on several episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, where he was both Lester Scobie and Sam Muggins, uh, yeah. both guys who old Ben Weaver wanted locked up and foreclosed on. Huh. So he was a constant right. target of Ben Weaver's wrath. He was also a co-star of the 1960 film, The Beatniks, which was on <laughs> Mr. Science Theater 3000, and was written and directed by Paul Freese. 
Oh, wow. I yes. had no idea. Very strange. Wow. Uh, I, I, can I just say that Adult Thumper really cracks me up because it's uh, his voice is always really fun. Like, hey, hey, guys. <laughs> Adult Thumper. Hey, really guy. cool. Hey. hey, you. Hey, buddy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's that guy. Uh, so now that that little magical mystery tour is over, let's talk America Sings. As I mentioned, the show had four main acts, the Deep South, Heading West, the Gay 90s, and Modern Times. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> the Load and Unload rooms also had identical gazebo sets where Sam and Ollie would either welcome or bid farewell to guests. The medley of shows, which we get on the official album, only pulls from the first three acts of the show for some reason. And Jeff, this is another frenetic medley. Yes, it is. Uh, it puts the others to shame, I have to say. It's, <laughs> it is all over the place. And a lot of the things we've talked about have been edited together to be sort of frenetic. But this, when you watch the original show, the show is a breakneck pace of yes. just one thing to the next. I mean, that's the thing is it includes more songs at the same pacing. So if you want to think about America Sings, there's just like, it's like this times four or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like drinking from a fire hose. It's really crazy. <laughs> right. um, it's it's something else. They just cram a bunch in there. I also wonder if the, uh, the medley of songs we get on the album are from the first three acts of the show, if that's because they're all public domain, as opposed to the act four, which has things like Hound Dog and I am Joy sure to the World, is... which are all uh, not public domain. That's got to be the reason. But thank goodness, because that uh, fourth act does not age well, I got to say. No, the rest <laughs> modern times is uh, no longer modern times. Uh, lovably rough. Yeah. So we kick things off here with Yankee Doodle, the song which was used to introduce and close out the ride, and a tune that recurs throughout the show as the listeners transition from act to act. So it's kind of the great big beautiful tomorrow of America Sings. Uh, Yankee Doodle is a song that predates the American Revolution with a melody that is thought to actually go back as far as medieval Europe. The song was originally sung by British officers to mock colonial troops. Uh, Doodle is a warping of a German word meaning fool, and a macaroni was a men's wig that was very fashionable at the time. So the gist of the song is that American soldiers were just a bunch of rubes who would stick a feather in their hat and think that they're fancy dandies. Uh, the song spread widely in the revolutionary years, and it was quickly co-opted by the Americans as a point of pride. So they kind of flipped the script on them and turned it around. Uh, we kick off Act 1 with a quartet of geese, four birds whom you would recognize if you've ever been on Splash Mountain. Uh, in later years of this attraction, in the first two acts of this show, uh, the bird quartet became a bird trio because two of the birds were removed for the Star Tours queue, where they were the sort of talking bird robots. Oh, uh, no feathers, just bare bones. But that's where they wound up at in uh, the later years of America Sings. Uh, these birds also might have familiar voices. Would it shock you to find out that three of them were naturally mellow men will we ever have a show anymore that doesn't mention the mellow men 
I it's think like not. on the, yeah the ballad of davy crockett the mellow man i mean all connected all connected uh one of them is bill cole who was wendell and sammy the raccoon in country bear jamboree another was bill lee who did much voiceover work for disney and elsewhere both within and without the mellow men he did Sher Khan singing in Jungle Book, uh, Rogers singing in 101 Dalmatians. He was Melvin the Moose in the Country Bear Jamboree. And this blew my mind. He also did Christopher Plummer singing in The Sound of Music. Yeah. Which is a mellow man. Wild. Yes. Uh, a third goose was Gene Merlino, who was a latter day mellow man in the 60s and 70s. Huh. So the geese here are singing Dixie which is a 19th century number allegedly written by the Ohio-born Daniel Decatur Emmett around 1859, although some contest that claim. Uh, the song emerged from, wait for it, blackface minstrelsy, of which Daniel Decatur Emmett was a pioneer. He formed the first major minstrel troupe, the Virginia Minstrels, in 1843. Uh, Dixie was adopted as an unofficial national anthem of the Confederacy during the Civil War, but it was also a favorite of Abraham Lincoln, who was said to have delighted after the end of the war that America had been able to, quote, fairly capture, unquote, the song. So <laughs> he took it back. He wanted it back. Interesting. Uh, the song in the years that followed became part of the American folk tradition, but has, of course, fallen out of favor in recent decades. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, back in the carousel theater, we transitioned to a hound dog in a rocking chair. This was the picture that was on the back of the album, yes. and which kind of confused me as to what yeah. this attraction was. Yes. <laughs> a hound dog in a rocking chair with a big pipe and, uh, my old Kentucky home plays. We've already spoken about Stephen Foster in this episode. Of course, he wrote this minstrel song around 1852, possibly inspired by Harriet Beecher Stowe's uncle Tom's cabin. The song marked a turning point in Foster's career where his songs became less comic and he began to espouse more overt sympathy for the enslaved. Uh, despite the fact that it came from a minstrel tradition, no less than Frederick Douglass promoted the song, uh, claiming that it, quote, awakens sympathies for the slave in which anti-slavery principles take root, grow, and flourish, unquote. So he was a fan. It, it is now the state song of Kentucky although a few offensive words have been changed over the years. Well, that sounds Thankfully. familiar. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we have the Swamp Boys singing Polly Wally Doodle. This group consists of a trio of singing alligators, three frogs in funny hats, and an harmonica playing raccoon, who is also familiar. Mm -hmm. According to information online, so, you know, your mileage may vary, the three gators were rockabilly singers Mac Curtis and Ray Campy, as well as country singer Jerry Handley. Polly Wally Doodle is yet another 19th century number attributed to, guess who? Dan Emmett and his Virginia minstrels. This huh. one has been a survivor, though, becoming a children's standard even today, and recorded by everyone from Bing Crosby to Alvin and the Chipmunks to Burr Alives to VeggieTales. It's prominently featured in Frank Capra's 1938 film, You Can't Take It With You. Yes. Yeah. Which you should watch. And yes. the same year, it appeared in the cartoon Good Scouts, performed by some of our favorite cartoon ducks.
We close out Act 1 with a chorus of gospel-singing chickens and foxes singing down by the riverside, led by vocalist Jewel Hall. The Negro spiritual predates the Civil War and has been used in later years as an anti-war protest song. It's been covered many, many times by everyone from Lead Belly to Elvis to Paul Anka to Peter, Paul, and Mary. I was also delighted to see that it was played at the funeral of Jordy LaForge and Roe Laren in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, <laughs> The Last Phase, which I had never noticed before, but oh, which man. pleased me greatly. Oh, man. That's a great episode. Uh, so uh, here's a clip of electric guitar pioneer Sister Rosetta Tharp performing the song in the early 1940s. I'm going to lay down my heavy load Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Down by the riverside I'm going to lay down my heavy load Down by the riverside Study war no more I ain't going to study war no more No, I ain't going to study war no more No, no, I ain't going to study love sister rosetta tharp she is a legend she really is and man could she play uh act two brings back the geese this time singing i've been working on the railroad folk song which dates to the 19th century uh, we're then introduced to the iconic saddle sore swanson a cowboy turkey who performs the old chisholm trail uh, this is another song from the late 19th century first published by musicologist and folklorist John Lomax in 1910. Like many other folk songs, it has roots in a deeper tradition, dating back to an English song from the 1640s. But the Cowboys made it their own, and it has been recorded by a slew of country and Western artists. Let's have a brief snippet of a version from 1946 with Merle Travis, Betty DeVere, and the Bronco Busters. Well, come along, boys, and listen to my tale. Gonna tell you about my troubles on the old system trail. Come and tie a yippee Well, I started up the trail October 23rd. Started up the trail with the two you heard. Come and tie a yippee Saddle Sore has a notable voice actor, Chill Wills. <laughs> Born in Texas. Chill was an actor and singer who made his name appearing in Westerns. He was also the voice of Francis the Talking Mule. So, uh, not Gus, but Gus adjacent. Right. He was in a ton of prominent movies, including Meet Me in St. Louis, The Harvey Girls, and McClintock. <laughs> he even played the police captain in a Progress City Public Access TV favorite, Where the Boys Are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he was also a big supporter of Barry Goldwater and George Wallace's presidential campaigns. So I'm afraid to say saddle sore has been canceled. <laughs> uh, also, according to Alice Davis, Chill was a weird guy who refused to go into the carousel theater to see the show because he thought it was unnatural for a building to move. And he was so scared of it that he left the opening <laughs> ceremony early. That's incredible. I mean, that name, Chill Wills, is that is up there. Yeah, that's 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 some quality name there. Country, country and western naming right there. I always think it's interesting in this uh shortened version and in the show, 
how much uh, this is kind of like a weird breath for the show where they like introduce saddle source Watson and he like taught is like a weird kind of singular moment where it's like this guy doing his thing. So, yeah, it there in the show, there are a few times where they call out like a funny named person, just a couple, but in this like really brief sort of medley, that's the only one that they do. So it really does stand out. It's like, oh, Saddlesaurus Swanson. That's, <laughs> I guess when you've got Saddlesaurus Swanson, you got to use Saddlesaurus Swanson. Top billing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we uh, now find ourselves in the gay 90s where the geese are singing She May Be Somebody's Mother. Now, this is a number I can't find out anything about, although it may be based on an 1878 poem called Somebody's Mother, which has kind of a similar theme but they only really sing a line from it so there's not much to go from hmm. uh they also sing the bowery which is a well-known song written by percy gaunt and charles hoyt from an 1891 musical called a trip to chinatown uh, as well as after the ball an 1891 number by charles k harris oddly enough uh, after the ball was later added to the libretto of a trip to chinatown as well it was a common practice in early musical theater to just drop popular songs into musicals, whether or not they had anything to do with the plot. If it was a popular song, they just like grab it and put it into the play and have somebody sing it. And it didn't matter if it made any sense. So uh, after the ball was the most successful song of its day, selling over 5 million copies of sheet music, which was the way things were measured back then. Uh, here's the songwriter, Charles Harris, performing the song himself on film several years later. Are gone. Many a heart is aching. If you could read them all, many the hopes that have vanished after the ball. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Wow. Yeah. That very dramatic. Very dramatic. <laughs> that song is a banger, though. Yeah, it is. Big time hit. Uh, we then close things out with the great Betty Taylor, Slewfoot Sue herself, straight from the Golden Horseshoe Review, performing Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey, in the guise of a showgirl pig. Uh, published in 1902, this tune was written by Huey Cannon, a Michigan bar pianist, to poke fun at a friend and regular customer named Bill Bailey. Uh, apparently, uh, he thought it was funny that Bill Bailey was staying out late. Bill Bailey's wife didn't think it was so funny. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, Cannon sold off his rights to the song and died at 35 of cirrhosis, while Bill Jeez. Bailey eventually did quit going home entirely, and he and his wife Sarah divorced. 
but such are the wages of popular song. Uh, Jeff, that is a heck of a show, and it's only a fraction of the actual attraction. Yes, and I mean, I can't encourage everybody to go watch a YouTube of America Sings and imagine yourselves there. I, I wish I could have seen it. There looks like there's all kinds of cool effects and background stuff and neat little bits of business and ways they uh, deal with the space uh, in the Carousel Theater. It just is gigantic in its uh, scale, but yeah, the the manic pacing of the music is is notable. <laughs> yeah, you really get a feeling that the Disneyland Carousel Theater was much larger than the one in Disney World, just from all the stuff that they managed to fit on stage. Uh, all the risers and the things that it's kind of like American adventure where you have things popping up here and there, like things will rise up and then sink back down. And uh, it's, it's kind of that same effect. So they must've had plenty of room back there. It's pretty incredible. And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it lasted up until the eighties, right? It didn't last very long. All right. Amazingly, the elaborate show lasted only 14 years closing oh, on April 10th. 1988 uh, it was a favorite of mark and alice davis and they remained upset about its closing as you might imagine mm -hmm. but um let's travel back ourselves to happier times and take a musical trip through america's past with america sings <laughs> Riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. Cranky Doodle, keep it up, Cranky Doodle dandy. Mind the music and the step, and with the girls be handy. <laughs> Yankee Doodle. Yes, folks, that was America's first popular song. And that's what this show is all about America's music. I wish I was in the land of cotton. No times there, and I've forgotten. Look away, look away. The sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home Tis summer, the home folks are gay It's the good life The corn tips ripe And the meadows in the bloom And the birds make music all the day Now, the Swamp Boys. Oh, I went down south for to see myself singing Hollywood Doodle all day. My Sally Ann was a funky gal singing Hollywood Doodle all day. Very well, very well, very well, my Mary Faye. I'm off to Louisiana to see my Susiana singing Hollywood Doodle all day.
And now, Saddle Sore Swanson. Yeah! Well, come along, boys, and listen to my tale, and I'll tell you all my troubles on the old Chisholm Trail. Down my tie, yippee, yippee, yay. Come and tie, yippee, 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 yay. Now I went to the boss to draw my roll, and he had me figured nine dollars in the hole. Ay, 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 ay. She may be somebody's mother. Come, let her go her way. The Bowery, the Bowery. They say such things and they do strange things after the ball is over. After the break of morn. Won't you come home, Bill Bailey? Won't you come on home? We have one last song from the musical souvenir record next. It's the British Grenadiers by the Fife and Drum Corps of Liberty Square. Now, the British Grenadiers is a rather old song and one of the most popular military marches during the 18th century. It dates back to 1706, back even further to a country dance called New Bath and other various debated sources. The Fife and Drum Corps at Walt Disney World was formed and directed by George P. Carroll, who has quite the pedigree for this genre of music. Uh, George was born in Canada, eventually enlisting in the army there and organizing a drum corps that would play with varying ensembles. One military band he was involved in, the Black Watch Military Band, was chosen to perform in Washington, D.C. for Queen Elizabeth II's visit. Once there, he was invited to join the U.S. Army Band, which he did in 1958, eventually performing at JFK's inauguration and many other events. Uh, Around the time he started in the band, he was also asked to help start a fife and drum corps for the Army, which would eventually result in the Army's Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps, formed in 1960 and still in existence today. Carroll would do so much research on the topic, he would become the preeminent authority on fife and drum music. And he would begin working a lot with Colonial Williamsburg, eventually taking the job in 1961 as the drum major and music master of the fife and drum corps there. Uh, With this guidance, the Williamsburg corps would become one of the best and most famous in the country. Carroll would work there for 10 years until the opening of Walt Disney World when he would move to Florida to lead the Corps there and be a senior show coordinator, a job that sounds very similar to Jim Christensen's in California. He would lead orchestras and ensembles, put together shows, and work with guest appearances for TV specials. I guess he was kind of a right-hand man to Jim Christensen. And uh, after 10 years at Disney, he would move on. Uh, He would go to Alexandria and work with some for the Pentagon, helping with writing and displaying history and owning a drum shop and giving drum lessons, which I find hard to believe. Really? Learn from the best, I guess. Mercy. And finally, in 2015, he would retire in Williamsburg, and he passed away in March of this year, March 2020, 10 days before Jim Christensen did. So, I mean. One thing that 
we learned it's interesting that we've talked spoken so much about Jim Christensen in these last episodes, and then uh, just to find out that he had passed away this year. Uh, it's uh, it's a big loss to Disney music history for sure. And uh, both these guys, uh, Carol, again, you see with Disney the habit of like hiring the best of the best to bring in as experts to put things together, and that's. Certainly what they did when he came in to work on the Fife and Drum Corps. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's incredible. You you are looking for a band to play kind of as atmosphere music for one land of your theme park, and you go get the, kind of the guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, well, may as well get the best of the best. It's like the uh, Steel Drum Band, really. It's just like the same thing where you're getting the best person, like you said, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I'd like to know more about his work as a, uh, a show producer, a show coordinator, because you know, they had Meredith Wilson down there, all kinds of stuff for the grand opening, uh, he was involved in. So Mm -hmm. I'm especially intrigued by his work with uh, the guest appearances for the TV specials, because, as we know from the TV specials of this time, I'm sure that yes. that would be uh, involve a lot of fascinating things going on. Yes, yes. This song is ubiquitous with this area and in all kinds of different versions. But the fife and drum sound at Liberty Square and at the American Adventure at Epcot, it's definitely a part of the fabric of the Disney Park music. That Absolutely. pretty unique to Orlando, really. Yes, yes, because it's something, you know, Disneyland doesn't have an area like that, nor do any of the other Disney parks have a Liberty Square or an American Adventure. So it is something that is definitely very much rooted in the Walt Disney World tradition. So here is the British Grenadiers from the Fife and Drum Corps. Here it is. Close out our musical extravaganza with something that isn't even musical at all, and which earns this album its spoken word tag on Discogs. It's a Hall of Presidents slash Mr. Lincoln, featuring that most royal of Danos himself, Royal Dano, performing as Abraham Lincoln. Dano was featured in both Disneyland's Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln and Walt Disney World's Hall of Presidents, giving similar speeches with slight variations in delivery and content. The Hall of Presidents version is shorter than the Disneyland version, as it is just a piece of a much larger show. The Lincoln speech is comprised of excerpts from his addresses that have been weaved together to give a warning about forces hostile to the Union rising up from within America itself. The speech was put together by James Algar, 
may be best known for his work on the True Life Adventure films, who wrote and produced both the Disneyland and Walt Disney World shows, and had been involved in Walt's attempts to put the presidents into the park since the Liberty Street Project in 1957. The piece we hear on this album comes from two different Lincoln speeches, an 1858 speech at Edwardsville, Illinois, and an 1838 address to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois. And wow, it feels just as relevant now as it did almost 200 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, very (laughs) timeless in its warnings, sometimes more than others. Exactly, exactly. Uh, We should take a moment to talk about Royal Dano, who does such a great job as Lincoln. Dano was a veteran actor with many credits to his name, ranging from old westerns to television to Twin Peaks. He also appeared in the Disney film Savage Sam, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and the Touchstone film Spaced Invaders. Uh, Walt wound up picking Dano himself to serve as Lincoln for his One Nation Under God project, which eventually evolved into great moments with Mr. Lincoln and then the Hall of Presidents. In 1952, Dano had appeared as Mr. Lincoln alongside Joanne Woodward in Mr. Lincoln, a five-part installment of the television series Omnibus. He even played a character called Honest Abe in an episode of Rifleman, where his character was a Civil War soldier with PTSD who thought he was Abe Lincoln. Here's a just a little clip of him doing Lincoln in that episode. Will you accept my apologies? I mean you no harm, citizen. I'm not your citizen, Mr. Loco. Mr. Lincoln is my name. All right, if you're Mr. Lincoln, you know who I am. Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong was a good wrestler. That's right. You want to take me on? Uh, I'd be proud to oblige you, sir. Mr. Swenson? After Dano's speech, we close things out with the Battle Hymn of the Republic, a tune that comes from 18th century camp meetings and which gained lyrics by abolitionist writer Julia Ward Howe in 1861. It was scored here by, of course, Buddy Baker. It's a rousing and patriotic finale to the show and to this album. So let's have a listen. This government must be preserved in spite of the acts of any man or set of men. Nowhere in the world is presented a government of so much liberty and equality. To the humblest and poorest among us are held the highest privileges and positions. What constitutes the bulwark of our liberty and independence? It is not the frowning battlements or bristling seacoast, our army and navy. These are not our reliance against tyranny. Our reliance is in the love of liberty, which God has planted in us. Our defense is in the spirit which prizes liberty as the heritage of all men, in all lands everywhere. Destroy this spirit, and you have planted the seeds of despotism at your own doors. At what point 
shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge. At what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up among us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and its finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Surely God would not have created such a being as man with ability to grasp the infinite, to exist only for a day. No. No. Man was made for immortality. So that brings us to the end of Side B, and with it, the end of the 1980 official soundtrack of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Jeff, we made it. We did. We did. That was a beautiful finale. Gotta love that Buddy Baker work, his work on the Mr. Lincoln attraction, particularly. It's just beautiful stuff. So Very stirring. What a way to send us off. Yes. And I mean, it just shows, it just goes to show you how important hall of presidents was to walt disney world at the time how proud they were of it and you know they even put out a separate album just for hall of presidents they put one out for great moments with mr lincoln as well so that's right each received its own soundtrack album yeah we have one of each pretty cool stuff that is a uh wild side b it's it's wrapped it's a wonderful record it goes yeah. everywhere got your attractions you got your area uh, entertainment it's uh, good stuff and it really man it really takes me back listening to i don't listen to it too often because 
you know, we've been superseded by more detailed and more comprehensive albums over the years. But whenever I put this on it, man, it really takes me back. Yes, it is the core material that we had infused in our brain and perhaps DNA at a young age. <laughs> exactly. Severe epigenetic indications yes. of, uh, of this soundtrack. So, so we will continue this musical theme the rest of this month. As we've said, we are going to have an interview coming up with the great Randy Thornton, who will talk to us about a number of soundtrack and park audio and other related things. So we've got that to look forward to. Yes, and I'm very excited for everybody to hear that. It was a real pleasure to sit down with him, as we've said. So stay tuned for a couple of weeks there. Now, as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, we were going to bring something to you, a new way that you can participate with the show and help support the show and uh, maybe get a little bit of extra content on the side. And, you know, I was thinking we should have done one of those uh, – in these challenging times ads for this, you that's know, that's true. That's true. That would have gone over well. Yeah. That would have gone over. People can't get enough of that. Not enough. Of in them, these challenging right. times, you want to support your local podcaster. So what we've decided to do is we are setting up a Patreon to help keep the home fires burning here at progress city headquarters. Now that we've, I think we've proved that we can do more than three episodes in a decade. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I think we've thrown concept. our hat in the proverbial ring. That's right. And so uh, we are going to have a little tiered system on, uh, on the Patreon where you can contribute, uh, whether it is uh, just a couple of dollars a month, maybe, or on up. Uh, we're going to have several different tiers. Jeff, what do you think about this? Well, I'm excited. It will allow us to do more content and to keep doing it at the rate we're doing for the podcast, for the free content. And, you know, we have some stuff on that we left on the cutting room floor and a little bit more that we want to do that's a little bit more informal. So it gives us a good avenue to do that. And obviously the time that we put into it is... Uh, uh, hopefully valuable enough to warrant such a venture. Absolutely. Especially your time, because you are, you're a busy man and you do the heavy lifting on making it sound good and editing it all together. So we're going to have a couple of different levels. Uh, what we're doing is we are calling it the progress city order of the chili bowl. Uh, perhaps progress city's most renowned and revered benevolent organization <laughs> and, and exclusive uh, social club. Oh, very exclusive. Very, very exclusive. So uh, we start off at, at $2. We, uh, that's our just sort of, you know, general thanks tier. Uh, yeah, if you want to just contribute to just a little bit of something. At $5, you start to get some extra content. And uh, you get a little package with maybe a little Progress City sticker, maybe a little Progress City button, and a little membership card for the order of the chili bowl and at ten dollars you get all that stuff and more you get a digital copy of my book the progress city primer uh, and also we're going to start doing a monthly get together hangout q a session maybe some special guests you never know who's going to drop in and uh, that'll be at the ten dollar level so that's what we're starting off with uh, you know, there's room in the future for, you know, T-shirts and all sorts of kind of crazy things. But we want to start off manageable, of course. 
And uh, as Jeff said, you know, we've got we've got extra content. We've got stuff that was on the cutting room floor. We've got longer interviews that we edited down for time. Uh, we got more Frank Stanek, so that's exciting. A lot and, more Frank Stanek. Uh, we we've got ideas for lots of stuff, don't we? We have ideas. Yes, we have uh, things that we wouldn't put on the main podcast that would just be fun, kind of chatter stuff. Uh, we'd love to do that, and it opens up a lot of possibilities to talk more with you all and uh, be a little bit more casual and you know have fun yeah have some like silly like top five lists and things right. like that and you know kind of some of the uh, like you said more more casual stuff more hangouty kind of stuff and uh at the i think it's at the ten dollar level is where you can submit ideas for future shows maybe vote on future themed for future theme shows and what we're going to do is have a way for you to submit questions for future guests on our town halls and maybe each town hall will pick maybe, you know, three or four questions from uh, members of the order to submit questions and have them worked into the interview. So we can, you know, have questions from listeners, which I think would be cool. We will reach into the chili bowl and pull out the questions. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Reach into the chili bowl. I've got the perfect chili bowl for it too. Wow, yeah. So it's all sorts of things we think will be kind of fun and kind of silly and will hopefully be enjoyable for everybody. But you can find that at patreon.com slash progress city USA. Where else? And uh, I mean, obviously, we're just happy for you to listen. We're very grateful for you to be listening. And if you decide, you know, it's within your budget in these unusual times to uh, chip in a little. We really super, super appreciate it. That's right. Yeah, we thank you so much for considering it. And uh, and like Michael said, we're happy just to have you all as listeners alone uh, is, is just great. We love doing this show and are glad to be back and hope to just be around. So this will help us do it. Exactly. So again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash progress city usa and we'll have a link on oh you know everywhere you get links on the on progress city usa.com everywhere man everywhere so uh thanks again and uh let us know if you if you have any more ideas for ways we can make it even more cool let us know you know we're interested in hearing so as always you can reach us at podcast at progress city usa.com and online at Progress City USA on Twitter and the Facebook. And uh, Jeff is available at Jeff G. Crawford on Twitter. And let us hear what you think, what you'd like to hear, and so forth. So with uh, that musical escapade wrapped up, any final thoughts, Jeff? I am glad we did this. This was a, you know, we made it. Everybody was bugging us for years to do this i think we made a list in 2012 or something of of show ideas and this was one that that i thought of and uh i'm glad we got to do it it's been a lot of fun to go through this and eye opening so thank you for uh humoring me and uh i'm excited i'm excited to do another record next year i hope we can do another one like this there's plenty to pull from yeah and i learned a lot so 
Thanks for listening. Uh, drop us a line and have a great month. Thanks. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.